Hey there, Chip Close here, host of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. By now, you know I wrote a book. It's called The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. If you haven't picked it up yet, I would urge you to go check it out. You can get it on barnesandnoble.com. You can get it at amazon.com, or you can go and get it from my website, therestaurantmarketingmindset.com. Every single dollar generated on that website goes directly towards me, uh, helps uh, support me and, and the work I do, and, and really just would help support the next book I'm going to write and publish. Again, The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. Dot com. You can find that link uh, in the show notes. And don't go anywhere. We are welcoming back an old friend. Troy Hooper uh, is up to, uh, has got a big project on his lap. Uh, we're going to talk all about, uh, a little bit more about franchising, all about growth, huge uh, huge growth because he's working for a company right now called Pepper Lunch that is focused on huge, huge growth. And I think there's a lot we can take away. So even if you are small, even if you are not even thinking about growth yet, I think uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Don't go anywhere. All that more on today's episode of Restaurant Strategy. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable business. I also work directly with owners and operators all over the country through my P3 Mastermind program. This is a weekly group coaching program. New members come in, commit themselves to six months minimum in the program. We will turn your restaurant around. So if you're doing a million dollars in revenue, if you've been around at least a year and you just struggle with profitability, let me show you how to generate consistent, predictable 20% returns every single month. You get started by scheduling a call with me or someone from my team. Visit Restaurant Strategy Podcast com slash schedule. That link, as always, will be in the show notes. Now, thousands of restaurants across the country use KickFin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem because, let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, can be kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft. And there's never enough bank, uh, cash on hand to pay out those tips. So your managers are constantly having to make bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet Kickfin. KickFin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time, cashless, tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with KickFin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And guess what? Employees love it, so it becomes a really powerful recruiting tool. Best of all, restaurants can have KickFin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds, no hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars all across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com demo, and yes, that link is in the show notes. So my guest on today's episode actually has been here before. This is the 
fourth episode he has appeared in. Troy Hooper is the CEO of Hot Palette America, which is the parent company of a company, a restaurant chain called Pepper Lunch. Uh, more than 500 units uh, globally, seven here in North America. As you can imagine, uh, I think they brought him on board to help grow the uh, the North America division. Uh, there's a lot we're going to get to. There's a lot we're going to talk to uh, him about. I want to ask about Pepper Lunch and sort of their growth plans. But I think today is going to be um, we're looking uh, 40 yards down the line from where uh, from where we are from where most of the listeners, I think, are. But I think everyone's got ambition. I think everyone uh, is looking about what the next thing is or what is it? what does this company look like in five years, in 10 years? And I think he is exactly the right person to answer those questions. Uh, but enough already. we got to welcome to the show. Troy, good to have you back. Chip is always a pleasure. Absolutely my favorite space to hang out with. You're the value-driven guy who just wants to bring uh, truth and value and motivation and solid information. I, you, you and I obviously made from the same cloth. So excited to be here. Give some value. Uh, I always learn something from your perspective. So always excited to join you. You know, I started this show four and a half years ago, and it was really me scratching an itch because there was conversations I kept having over and over and over again with a lot of independent operators. And I just felt like I think I feel like I think I can help them in some way. And seeing where the show has grown over the last four and a half years, specifically, uh, sitting here across from you, the ability to go to trade shows, conventions, conferences, um, to give keynotes, to take uh, to take the stage, to listen to you and others take the stage. I find myself in rooms, literal or uh, or digital, um, with people that I that I would have never been uh, been able to connect with. Um, largely through this podcast and, and that amazes uh, that amazes me. Uh, I feel really fortunate to be able to sit and have conversations with you and I feel really fortunate because you and I connected many moons ago that I get to bring these conversations and sort of your background, your experience, your insights um, to the audience, to the thousands of people that listen to this. So thank you for continuing to carve out time to sit and chat with this audience and for bringing all of yourself to these conversations, which you always do. Like, I, I love the transparency that you bring, and uh, not everyone has that. Um, I have found in uh, as I as I get older and older, and, and I appreciate that more and more the older I get. Thanks, Chip. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, um, this is an amazing way to help uh, inform, empower, and educate, and motivate uh, folks who all are starting at zero. We all generally start at zero, and uh, you know, having a consulting practice for many years. How many people can I help one on one? You know this in your yep. coaching. You're you figured yep. out how to scale your coaching, but these platforms like the one you provide absolutely put us in a position to just. It's one nugget at a time. It's one thing that gives confidence to somebody. It's one thing that somebody hears and goes, yeah, I knew that was right. That's how we do that. Great. You know, and then they, they, they take another step, they move forward. Right. And so yep. I just, uh, I'm just always grateful to be able to have a platform like this to, um, to get out to more people really. It's so funny. So I first moved to the city in 2002. So was that 21 years ago, I moved to New York City and I started in restaurants. And we obviously back then didn't have the kind of resources we now have um, in podcasts, in YouTube, in the Internet, uh, certainly the way that we know it now. And I feel like whatever I learned, I learned because I was really lucky to work for or with some really extraordinary people. And now the resource that exists out there uh, in the internet, the ability to get access to 
um, uh, people like yourself. I think of some of the best interviews I've done on this show. They had Kevin Bame on the show like six months ago. And man, that dude just opened his playbook and said, this is what I believe. This is what I think about. This is what I uh, work with my team to do on a daily basis. This is how we've grown to 24, 25 plus restaurants um, <laughs> operating at a very high level. Like, yeah, here's my playbook. Like, take it if you think it'll help. And I just, um, I'm blown away at people's generosity and uh, I'm very grateful for me because uh, selfishly, I just ask the questions that I want answers to. Uh, but I'm really grateful on behalf of the audience that, um, that that kind of thing exists and that people are sort of kind and generous in that way. Uh, I think it's an awesome thing. I agree, my man. We're ready to go. Absolutely. All right. So you've been on a couple of times. Last time you were on, we did a two episode roundtable, uh, which turned out to be awesome. <laughs> um, all about franchising. We did an episode all from the franchisor side, right? So you got a concept, you think it's got legs, you say, hey, I want to grow this and turn this into a franchise, get people to buy into it. We just gave a whole episode, tons of value about what people need to look for in that relationship. Uh, the next one was on the franchisee side. Um, and the reason you were on here is because you're uh, one of the people in my life who knows a great deal about this. It's what you've what you've spent a great deal of your time doing over the last, let's say, 10 plus years. So today I thought maybe we'd have sort of the extension of that conversation. Um, Pepper Lunch obviously offers a backdrop. I want uh, I want to better understand what that's all about and sort of your role there and sort of what the next I'll say 24 months look like in what you guys are trying to accomplish. Uh, but I also want to provide the audience, the listeners here um, with some real tactical, tactical, tangible advice for, Hey, they're doing pretty good, right? They've, they've got their AUV um, down pat, their steady growth every single year. They've got their profitability dialed in. They've got systems that help them do that. That's so much of what I do with independent operators. And then they grow. They get one unit into two, into three, maybe into five. And at that point, they want to grow. And there are lots of other, lots of ways that are available to them to grow. Let's talk about growth at that level. Let's say you got AUV dialed in. You've got growth, steady growth. You've got your systems for marketing, get your systems for profitability and managing the operation. And you feel like you're getting your feet under you a little bit. Talk to me about what you've learned about this and how you can help sort of the independent operators out there looking to supercharge their growth. Yeah, great, great place to start. It's where I've spent most of my career, right? Working with the one to 10 unit groups that um, think they're ready or, or or different variable stages of being ready. And, um, and, and, and it's just, it's just the closest thing to my heart. I, I, I give that information away free every day. I don't charge me the hour. I just want people to know that the answers are out there. And, and so I'll start there. And that is, um, our friend Sean Walshev says, uh, stay curious, get involved, ask for help. Um, a rising tide really does lift all ships. Most people who've done it before you want to see you do it. Um, that's just the reality. You, your growth does not inhibit my growth. I don't care mm. if you're in the exact same genre, neighborhoods, foods, that just doesn't matter. There is something for everybody out there. And so my first piece of advice is get help. People have done this before you. They have made the mistakes. They have suffered the consequence. They have struggled through um, the, the the difficulties and, and the setbacks. And there are plenty of people who will mentor, 
and give you advice. There's plenty of great books. There's plenty of coaches like yourself that can draw the roadmap. And that's what I've spent most of my career doing is really drawing the roadmap and then sort of um, being the hiking buddy, being the running buddy, like, let's go. Yeah, I know how to run a marathon. Let's do one mile today. We'll worry about one and a half miles on Wednesday, right? Yep. And so that's where I come from to start with is there are milestones. There are sort of pretty standard um, averages and, and, and hurdles you're going to hit and walls you're going to run into. There are ways to see them coming. There are ways to avoid or work through them, work around them, chip away at them. But it, you know, if you're going to do it by yourself and you're going to read up on the internet and all that, and you're really not going to engage with folks who can uh, help educate and like the way, um, you're going to make all the same mistakes because they're very predictable um, challenges that are in front of you. And they're at really predictable junction points in your growth phase as well. So, you know, that's a sort of umbrella statement to start off the conversation. But um, you have to hear me loud and clear. And the answer is get help and, and or mentorship or all the above roundtables, mastermind groups like you run, get the next stage of information. Be aware of what's two and three stages down the road. If you're at if you're at three, don't worry about thirty. Just know what thirty looks like. Eventually, you got to get from three to five, from five to seven, seven to ten, ten to fifteen, fifteen to twenty or twenty-five. Like these are three, five, seven-store increments ultimately, mm -hmm. and every one of those has a different inflection point that you've got to see coming because that is where um, mastering moving through that is going to exist for you. So talk to me, it seems like that move from five to 10 is like, like one to two is huge. Yep. Right. Two to three is like, Oh, we did this. We, we've got systems in place now. Right. Three, four, and five are the same going from five to 10, because you're probably going out of your market. You're probably going to another town, another, the yep. next largest market near you. Um, that's how it seems to me. Is that is that a fair uh, is that a fair statement or is there another way you see this? Yeah, no, and, and I want to throw up a red flag right here. What we see a lot when people come and ask for advice or tell us where they're at and uh, where they're sort of running into roadblocks, um, the first one to realize is that the number of your operating partners and key employees should not be the statistical formula for how many stores you can open. I'll say it another way. I'm at five and I cannot get to seven or nine or 10. I'm just struggling. We open that fifth or sixth store and I go, great. How many partners are operating and working in the business? Well, there's three of us. And are the other two stores being run by your first two GMs that are the most knowledgeable and, and vested in on the journey? Yes. So you have limited your scalability by your, your network. You've built this insular organization that is not designed for scale. You've not built a legacy uh, system to uh, train up the next people to replace my position so I can move yes. up and they can move in, right? And so that is that is red flag number one. Set that now. Know that at store one, two, three, you have to start investing in the people that are going to join that journey and be your um, biggest, not only cheerleader, but actually take the torch. And they've yeah. got to work it. They got to work in the thing they do really well. Do not push them into areas because they're loyal and they're available. Don't make them do things they're not good at or they don't have passion over. Set that up. And what that means is investment. At three to five stores, you're actually gonna make sort of the biggest incremental 
um, ratio-based investment in human capital because you're sort of going to overspend and overcompensate, um, but you're doing that as an investment to prepare to propel you for growth. So that would be my first tactic. So it's the move from operator to owner. It's the difference between working in and working on your business, the move to a CEO, as, as I see, right? And a CEO doesn't do a lot. They just make all the big decisions and they put all the key people into place who know more than they do in any one given area. And they're really good at making decisions, at setting vision and all of that. That seems to me to be the move, right? You go from an operator to an owner, an owner to really a CEO of a, an organization, something that's larger than yourself. And it needs to be able to run without you, right? And that's, <laughs> I always say my not so secret secret, um, uh, goal in my mastermind is to create a bunch of absentee owners yep. because uh, I don't think any business should rely on any one person. It, it's, we're building systems. We're building, uh, this is what this role does this is when they arrive this is what they accomplish. This is what they have to do throughout the day. And this is when they leave. If you do that, you write that down on paper. That's just an SOP. Then anybody, yep. you can teach anybody how to do that really well. Maybe there'll be some people who can do it better than others. But at the end of the day, you're creating roles. You're creating a system and people fit within that system. Well, Jeff Bezos works from 10 to 2 every day, right? The, he, he, his most effective time is when his brain is ready, able, and capable of managing the big things. And he only does that from 10 to two every day. Um, the morning is a routine and eating right and exercising and reading and thinking about the decisions that are in front of him. It's the same thing. You said it exactly right. It's about knowing what the goal is, reverse engineering from that goal, every single brick step crumb all along the way, setting the strategy and the plan in chunks, and then assigning the right people to the right tasks as a team to accomplish it. Look, all the analogies in the world, but sports works great. Football team, right? On game day, unless the head coach is also the offensive or defensive coordinator, which most of the time he's not, head coach actually does very little on the sideline during the game. Might make a couple key decisions about when to call a timeout, but basically he's listening to the rest of his leaders. Yeah. Restaurant tours, if we start in the kitchen or we start as the entrepreneur operator, we all have a really hard time backing out, don't we? You've got to let go and empower and entrust, inform, educate, empower, and entrust your team, and then just inspect, keep track, keep them accountable, but let them do their yeah. job because they will do it better than you can do it. Because one person doing three jobs is better than one person doing 15 jobs. So, okay. So all of that's great. And I've heard that a million times. I've said that a million times, some version of that. The people listening have heard that. They say, yes, 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 yes. I hear you. How do I do it? Yep. The example you gave, right? We've got five units. There are three partners. I manage one. The other guy manages the other. The third manages the third. And then we got two good GMs, right? And that's we're, we're, and we're barely holding on. But really what you got to do is you got to pull the three partners out, right? So that they can oversee. And you got to plug in three new GMs. To the person who's sitting here listening and saying, yeah, that's me in some version or some version of that story, how do you do it? Because it, it may seem insurmountable. How do you begin? You begin by changing your mindset that 80 to 90% of your current or projected success is worth not being 100 or 110% if you pull yourself out. 
because you're building for the long term, not the next win. You're looking to win the Super Bowl, not the next game, right? And so, um, sorry, sports analogies, uh, helmet over my shoulders stuck on me today. But I use it um, all the time. <laughs> yeah, so like th that's the acceptance. It's a mindset of acceptance that yes, shit's going to happen. Things are going to fall out. Plates are going to hit the ground. Expenses are going to go up. You're going to have to come back and correct issues. And the answer to that organizational piece that you just said is A, don't assume the best person already works for you. You may need to go out and get them. And this is one of my favorite conversations with sort of these 10 unit groups is they get to a point where like, yeah, we had all the right people and we're all at our skill set limit. We've all hit the wall. None of us together or individually really know how to how to do 20 or how to do 30. We mm -hmm. need to start not necessarily replacing, but sometimes replacing, but augmenting this team. We need to insert the new knowledge set, the next level of information experience. So whether that's a regional manager that now comes in so that the partner or partners can jump out. Remember, all three partners are probably all doing the exact same thing, just one store at a time. Uh, that's what we see all the time. And so, yeah. or three partners are running five stores and they can all do every position. That's not the best use of anybody's time. Pull back, hey, three partners, we're gonna go get a small office across the street, upstairs, down the plaza, and we are going to huddle and we are gonna stand back and we are going to direct this thing, not drive this thing, right? We're going to be yep. traffic cop, not chauffeur. So that is step one is changing mindset. Step two is taking that most feared action of letting go and knowing stuff is going to fall through the cracks and being willing to pick that up, but understanding that that is worth the long-term vision and success. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm assuming part of this is simply a, a knowledge gap, right? Is that I know what I know and I know how to do what I do really well. I think one of the, the biggest issues that I see with our industry, this has become really apparent over the last certainly three or four years, is that uh, most restaurant owners are really good at building restaurants that give them a better job than the job they left, right? So I used to be a chef at this restaurant and everyone told me what to do and I couldn't make my food. I'm going to make my own restaurant and I'm going to go be the chef and I'm going to and I'm going to do what I want to do. And ultimately, it's going to be more satisfying. But at the end of the day, it's a job. And while, again, your analogy of playing the long game, playing for the Super Bowl, this guy traded teams and has a more fun on the next team next Sunday, but doesn't realize after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, it's like, oh, I'm still just playing. And I can't keep playing. I can't keep playing at this level, right? I just, it's too hard, the wear and tear. And eventually, that's no longer going to be... Um, uh, challenging enough, uh, interesting enough, or or even possible, that really what they did was they created a really great job for themselves. And what we really need to do is create a a, a piece uh, that, that provides legacy that can uh, exist long beyond us that we can pass on to the next generation, whether that's literally your children or to the next generation of restaurant workers who really wants to do that. Um, but many restaurants, just many restaurateurs don't have that luxury because the numbers don't work or because they don't know how to do that. So some of this, I would say, and you said it a, a second ago, right? Educate and empower is something I say a lot. Simply by showing people, teaching them what they need to be doing, how they need to be doing the job, right? Is half the battle doing that and then stepping out of the way. And as you step out the door saying, hey, and by the way, I trust you, I empower you 
right? This is what I need you to do. I need you to hit a 28% food cost or whatever that is. And given all the things you now know, I empower you, I trust you to make decisions to hit that number. That's the number I need you to hit. And I'm going to be right over in this other room. So if you need help, if you got a question, if you need support, you need me to have difficult conversations with some people because some of those conversations are hard, then that's what I'm here for. I'm here to troubleshoot, brainstorm, problem solve, or here just for, for support. That's what I'm there for. But I'm going to be over here doing a whole bunch of other stuff. So I've, I've educated you. I've empowered you. And then ultimately you encourage them to, you know, come get support. Um, that's how I see that move there. And to your point, they're going to make mistakes. But when you do that and you tell me if you feel this, I see this every single time, you get buy-in. When the owner leaves the room and then there's the manager, right, the GM, the chef, right, the CDC, whatever, and they go, man, I got the keys to the kingdom. It's all they step up in a way that you can't replicate any other way that you get buy-in, you get a sense of ownership um, from your entire team because you've said, because you've literally, you, you've entrusted them to do it. And they say, okay, it's it's me or nobody. Yeah, look, it's leadership versus management, right? It's, it's on your business versus in your business. As you said, it's cliche, everybody hears it. But what that means is um, realizing that your job as the owner, operator, leader, uh, strategy set, setter is to obtain and provide the resources, uh, transfer that information, knowledge, and experience effectively, and set clear expectations and systems of accountability, and not shy away from using those tools and applying that accountability because everybody wants to be given the opportunity, but also wants the support and uh, fail safe to ask for help. So you have to set you have to set aside and eliminate fear. And I say that that's by um, giving permission to fail. They have to know that they're going to fail, that you're going to fail as a leader. They're going to fail as a leader, a manager, an operator. And that when that happens, this is how we're going to handle it. It is the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen when I actually screw something up and it costs us money or we miss something or you know we cause another problem or people quit what is the fallout is always the default to how i'm going to work through it and get around it and mitigate the fear-based stuff if as the leader you say listen i'm going to make, make mistakes you're going to make mistakes when these happen here's how we're going to solve and manage yeah, and I correct and by the way there's very few things you can do that are um, catastrophic. You, you're going to do something that's going to cost money. You're going to do something that's going to cost an employee. You're going you're gonna to make the wrong hire. You're going to buy the wrong product. It's okay. We get it. But here's how we're going to handle those. And as long as you're setting the tone of learn and progress, then yeah. you really are actually empowering people. And then you cannot micromanage. You cannot stare over the shoulder. Accountability is different than micromanaging, right? Yep, yep. Dealing with the consequence is dif different from mitigating. Following my son around and telling him to be careful and don't bump his head and, and don't run so fast is different from, hey, when he falls, we're gonna make a lesson out of it. We're going to yeah. understand that that is what happens when we do this. Though That's sort of the analogy that I think yeah. most business operators who start working in their business 
don't understand about scalability. In order to grow, you have to step out and get into that leadership strategic setter accountability holder role. Yeah, I love that. I worked with a guy once who ended every meeting and he says uh, he'd go around the room to the whatever, the six managers, eight managers there. He said, tell me something you did really great this week. And what and, and what what should we all learn from that? And somebody would say, oh, I, I did this and this is what I took away or this is what I think uh, I can pass along to everyone. He said, great. Tell me about one mistake you made and what you learned from it, and how you're going to correct it in the future. He's like, oh, OK, I made and we went around the room man. everyone said one thing they did great. One one thing that, you know, a little win. And, you know, somebody was like and it was some some of it was like stupid. Some was like, hey, it was building the stock. And I realized that, you know, if we did X, Y and Z, we could actually make it have more flavor. We cut about, you know, 15 percent of the cost of it. And we make so much, you know, shellfish stock every week uh, that I, it turns into real savings. I think it's going to turn into maybe like, I don't know, 15, 20 thousand dollars at the end of the year um, to the bottom line. And, and I think that's great. So I'd love to talk about ways that we can reinvest some of that 15 or 20 thousand um, dollars to make other areas more efficient and all that. And the guy was like, great, give me a list of four things. What are the four things you want to be doing at the end? It was like, it was just, it was so cool. Like, like, listen, I made our stock better and I cut 15% off of the cost of it. It was like crazy. Like, like some little thing that was very specific to what that guy did every single day. What that, and that was a sous chef, right? A sous chef who was uh, building all the sauces and overseeing the stocks, you know, once they were boiling overnight, you know, it was like, that's how that guy owned it. Yep crowdsourcing best practices. Look, your team is younger, they're hungrier, they're they're excited, they have all this energy, have this intellectual energy to yeah. learn and and they see things different because they haven't had the repetition and uh, that was, know, in their mind. That's right. And that was folded into the culture, right? The, yeah. And the culture there and and he was very hands-off. He was what he did, you know, he was the puppeteer behind the strings. And I learned a lot from him and watching that. But on the surface, it looked like he just walked around the dining room, shook hands with people, hung out, sort of pointed to things that needed to be fixed and all. It looked like a very lazy manager, but he was a very um, he just he loved to empower the people. And ultimately, he was like, they're smarter than I am. Right. Collectively, we're all smarter than any one of us. And what happens is you get buy-in and people, and he built that into the culture. How do we make yeah. things better? How do we do it more efficiently? Which oftentimes meant cheaper, right? How do we cut our costs? And how do we put out a better product and continue to become more profitable? He built that into the fabric. He was always talking about it. He got other people thinking about it and talking about it. And ultimately, it's like, how do we do what we do better? How do we do it more profitably? And with those two things, that like that was the true north for that place. And by the way, most of our hospitality team uh, have worked at or do still work at other businesses. And they're willing to say, hey, over there, if, they're, if they feel comfortable, if they're put in an environment that they feel like their contribution matters and that um, they can, they, 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 you're going to like at least listen, um, they'll bring you tips and tricks that they've solved. Some, somebody else has solved for you. Like, what is yeah. the guy down the street doing? Your staff probably knows. So, you know, same yep. thing. You, and you're right. You have to build that culture of trust. Look, and, and let me caveat that, like open door policy, kind of an old way of saying it. You've got to show them that you're listening. You have to engage and you have to constantly remind and invite and give permission. And then when they come to you, no idea is too small, no idea is too crazy. And it's not no, it's not 
never it's it's hmm okay that's interesting okay i don't know enough about that would you do me a favor go get with the stakeholders who does that affect and you're teaching yeah. them to critically yeah. think well did you realize that's going to affect the dishwasher how's that going to affect the dishwasher i'm talking about it's going to affect the dishwasher think about it yep. go talk yep. to your colleagues talk to your managers crowdsource sit down make you know i'll buy everybody a milkshake sit down for 20 minutes <laughs> and and brainstorm this and come back with a little bit of a framework i want to hear what you're how would you solve this don't ask See, me for the answer what, how would you solve this and you know what happens there and this is the key part of it you have to make space for that right i love the term brainstorm i, I brainstorm yeah. a lot all the a lot of the action items uh that i will give my um uh, the members of my my mastermind group i say great really great idea uh i want i want 15 more Right. Yep. We talk about, hey, how are we going to grow catering sales? And they'll say, well, I got this really great idea, blah, 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 blah. So great. So perfect. Love it. Great. Come up with 14 more because yep. I don't know if that that, that thing's going to work, but you have to make space to brainstorm. It's the best part about the mastermind program I run. I find that people then are making space because we meet two hours every single week on a like the trains come trains yep. come every uh, every week and they're making the space for that sort of thinking. And that kind of listening, because most of what you do is you sit there on the call and you're listening to other people talk. You get to talk and ask questions and answer questions and offer advice, but mostly you're doing a lot of listening. And what I hope is that people take notes. And what I see is that a lot of people are taking notes about something totally different, right? And I'll say, hey, well, you were just writing a note. Do you want to share that? And he's like, no, 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 no. This thing uh, you know, sparked an idea for something else that mm -hmm. I was thinking about. And they're making the space for that. And I think in a restaurant, you need to make space. And I think this is the point to bring it all back uh, back on the on the rails here is that um, when you're in the business, you don't have time to work on the business. You can't think about uh, efficiencies or improvements or growth in the same way um, that you need to make the space for that, for how do we do what we do better? How do we do it more efficiently? How do we do it more profitably? I want to go in uh, because it strikes me that uh, I've got a question on behalf of one of my members because we we're talking about growth. And right now he's got three units of a concept. And he's said, he's like, I could probably grow it to five and self-finance and probably do it myself. And, and he's really good. He's really good about pulling himself out. And he's like, I could do that. I just have to determine if I want to do that. And then we've talked about what that might look like and, and how we might target other locations. Because um, I think there is probably value in him self-financing for now. Um, but he's like, but I, but I definitely couldn't do more than five. And then he'll stop and say, actually, I mean, I don't want to do more than five on my own. I want to do it. So... This is where we started talking about. So this guy's got three units. He's going to open a fourth and a fifth in the next, I'll say, 18 months. And then he goes, I, I, I can't. I can't. Um, I can't reinvest. There's not enough for me to reinvest to, to get 10 units. What are the options that uh, a guy like that would have available to him? And sort of how does he go thinking about the different paths that it might be available? Yeah. So I'll go back to my opening statement, and that is find other people who have done it and create yeah. a network effect whether it's one or three or five of them and ask them what different paths methodologies or techniques or um uh, or resources they were able to source because they'll tell you about things you never thought of the first answer is leverage what you're going to need when you and especially when i hear what you said about this guy because this is one of the most common things i hear is i don't want to run more than five stores because i'm running five stores at that point i need to step up step back take a breath, let some other people sort of step into these roles. But yep. 
I'm to do that. I, I either have to hire them now, and I don't have the money, and use that money instead of opening stores. But then, if I open the stores, I don't have the money to hire them. It is chicken and egg. So the answer is leverage. The answer is look at your like you said when we first started talking before we got on air was, um, are you dialed in? Are you efficient? Are the systems in place? Are the right people on the bus, and then are they in the right seat on the bus? To your point. If the answer is yes and you feel great about that and this just comes down to money, it sounds silly, but as you get older in this industry, you realize money is not actually the issue. If you have all of that in place and you have a solid business that has a predictable ROI and that you know where you should open, what size it should be, what it should cost to build, you know an ROI on that investment, getting the money is the least of your problems because today, there's plenty of agencies that do SBA loan uh, writing. They'll write the business plan. They, they know what gets approved. They know they can accelerate the timeline, and it's a fee, and it's worth it. So leverage the income of your existing business to borrow low-interest uh, loans from the SBA. You can get between 3 and $5 million. It, you can tell the SBA in groups like this, lenders like that, even traditional, non-traditional lenders, you are going to use a million of the three or $5 million to hire four, three more, four more positions or to elevate and replace certain positions to higher level positions because you want to do X, Y, and Z. And you can replicate that because when you get to five, you have greater leverage. When you get to seven, you have greater leverage. So you can, you can flip every one of those into individual loans or lump sum loans for three stores. The next option is a strategic investment partner not an operating partner that's gonna come in and work side by side with you and replicate you, but somebody who sees the vision and sees the success that you've built and can understand that the only barrier to scalability is really cash infusion and probably strategic advisement, right? Again, somebody who's been there, done that, they've invested or they've made their money by by being that operator who did scale it. Or they, you know, they had that best friend who went to, you know, Wharton and, we worked in Wall Street, and boy, they showed them how to how to get money and and leverage that. You know, so there are there are different ways. Simply, uh, the SBDC at your local community college university, free information. Well, write your business plan. There's agencies out there. We we use Benetrends. They're restaurant focused. Um, yes, they do a lot in franchising, but they have a lot for single and small growing brands to help educate them on the financial path and tools and resources at, at their disposal. There's lots of lenders out there that when they're properly educated will invest in this space. Strategic advisor, strategic investor, be careful. There's a million sharks out there. They want to write things in ways that I can tell you they're trying to take your business in four years. Be very, very careful. Have a, a third-party, nonpartisan middle person mediator to make sure, you know, a financial advisor attorney to make sure you're uh, doing a good deal for you and them as well. And then, you know, lastly is, is a true equity partner, right? Ultimately you've got something worth investing in. You've got a vision, you've got a plan, you know what you're going to spend the money on and how that's going to return over what period of time. That's a story. You tell that story to enough people you find somebody who buys into that vision. Ultimately, that's sort of the pinnacle, but most people jump to that. Most people go straight to, oh, I got to give 15, 20, 25, 30% of business away. And, and, and you know, they're going to write me a $750,000 check. No, <laughs> let's, 
let's get <laughs> let's get some strong financial advice here. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's many vehicles and many systems to do it. You've got to talk to people who've done it before you because they've probably made the mistakes. But it's it's absolutely worth paying for the right person for the right advice as well. The busiest time of year is coming. The question is, is your staff ready for the holiday rush? This year, give your team the gift of Pop Menu AI Answering, a simple solution for phones ringing off the hook. AI Answering handles calls every day of the year so your staff can focus on in-person guests. Customize your greetings and responses, answer common questions. You can promote specials and events and send follow-up links to ordering and reservations. AI Answering handles it all while escalating more complex conversations back to your team. Never miss another tasty revenue opportunity. PopMenu, the marketing technology platform designed to make your growing restaurant easy. Discover more AI restaurant tools that turn your to-do list into an already done list by requesting a demo today. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month. Plus, you get to lock in one flat, unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. Go now to get $100 off your first month again at popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. And yes, that link is in the show notes. When you think about growth in this way, when you look at, and you've got a lot of experience here, so uh, I'm, I'm, we're sort of out, getting out of the shallow water where I'm comfortable and getting into the deep, the deep water. So uh, in some of this, and I said this in the franchising roundtable, if I'm asking the wrong question, just tell me I'm asking the wrong question. When we start um, growing to five to 10, at a certain point, you're going to say, hey, do I franchise, right? Especially with a fast casual brand or a quick service brand, or do I continue uh, the corporate model and say, keep a lot of corporate stores and keep growing that? Franchising, especially over the last 20 years, has become really sexy and seems to be what everybody in the quick service or comes up with a fast casual model. They say, I want to do it. I want to grow it to three units. And then I want to franchise. Everybody I know has the FTD paperwork like ready to go, yeah. even though they're at seven, 8% profitability across the three yeah. units. And, yeah. uh, you know, talk about the cart way before the horse. We've talked in the past episodes, which I'll link to, by the way, for all the listeners who haven't listened to those, I'll make sure you guys have access to all of Troy's previous episodes. Cause I think it's uh, worthwhile um, listening to um, after you listen to this one, but how do you know, or how do you think about it? And you say, Hey, no, 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 let's keep growing the corporate model or no, let's, let's get people to buy in as a franchisee. First, it comes down to your goals. It really comes down to your goals, um, financial, what kind of organization you want to run, how big of an organization, what your skill set or your team skill set is. It, it's a really personal decision, but most people make that poorly informed to your point. Oh, I call some guys at an expo, you know, $35,000 and I've got all my paperwork and I'm ready to go. Well, guess what? 250,000, uh, sorry, 250 franchise corporations form in the United States every year and almost the exact same number stop uh, renewing their incorporation every year. It's almost a hundred percent turnover rate in the franchise system. Now that's not just restaurants, but restaurants make up the majority yeah. of the franchise business in the, in the United States. So that's a pretty clear cut example. It's sort of like the old adage, Oh, uh, experts, 80, 70, 80% of all restaurants fail within three to five years. Right? True. But if you know what you're doing and you have the tools and resources, skills, knowledge, it, it actually is a lot simpler. I'll take everybody back a little story. 
Um, seven years ago, I was the anti-franchisor. I would have told you franchising's full of all of these shysters and these uh, used car salesmen, and they're going to sell you a bill of goods, and you're not prepared. You don't know what you're doing, da-da-da-da-da. And then I realized, and that's why we built KRP, Kiwi Restaurant Partners, was, well, if you do it right, and you have the right people, and you have the right knowledge, and you have the right plan, and you are effectively or properly resourced at the outset, you know what it's going to take financially, time commitment, effort commitment, et cetera. If you have the roadmap and the gas in the car, we can all get from A to B. We can get you there. Now, what we do is accelerate it. We cost you a lot less money because we do it faster, cheaper. We bring the economies of scale through long-term relationships. That's a different thing. You pay for that, but you you cannot do this by yourself. And everybody I ever have ever known that has actually done it by themselves has not made it with the exception of maybe five logos in the world. And I'll give yeah. Crumble Cookie the number one trophy for that. Crumble Cookie was three to five people that went from five stores to 500 stores in five years. So that's a real anomaly. Like you're not gonna be the Chipotle of this. You're not gonna be the Crumble Cookie of that because that's like saying I'm gonna win the lottery. Like yep. that's just not the norm. You cannot set your life based on those metrics. Right. But the answer is, is that the answers are out there. The, the, the information's out there. It's not cheap, it's not free, it's not easy. It's gonna take time and a lot of effort. But the way I think about franchising corporate versus franchise is what are your goals? What is the time frame to achieve those goals? In the end, what do you want? And I'll give people some examples. Look at Raising Cane's. Raising Cane's was around 15 or 17 years. And when they franchised, what they actually did was gave licensing rights or franchising rights to the top 30 employees, executives, and um, best operators in their system. Uh, Dave's Hot Chicken, another one. Yeah, they franchised a lot and franchised really fast, but their C-suite all were given the rights to two to five stores in their market of experience because they all came from operating or being in their position at other businesses. So those are unique models. Um, true franchising, uh, it takes three years to start build to build uh, properly resource set up and sell franchises. Just going to tell you right now, it's two to three years to get to a point. Um, you're not going to make your money back until you probably hit 30 to 50 units sold and open. You don't make money on franchise fees. Those are basically um, subsidies to the investment you make up front. So, so it's just about understanding what you're getting yourself into and yeah. having the right advice. And if it sounds too good to be true and 90% of the time it will, it is. It, this is not a write a check, receive a package in the, in the front doorstep and poof, people want my brand. And I know people today that are still in a position five years later and they've sold three to five. And I guarantee you they were the cousin's sister's cousin's neighbor of the best yeah. friend's college roommate. <laughs> like there was a connection there, right? Yeah. It's the cream off the top. When you can convince a savvy operator person in the business who owns other businesses or have owned other franchises, when you can convince them that you're worthwhile to be an investable franchise system, then you've built something. So I, again, goals, resources available, timing. So I just had this conversation with a phenomenal young lady. She's got seven stores. She's 
She's taking down a couple million dollars a year in total EBITDA. She has that to invest so she can build about three stores on her own. This is the common story, right? Seven to 10. She's got the sharks in the water. I'm telling you at 10 and between 20 and 25 and 30, and then at 50 is when the big boys come out and want to get involved. And at 10, they know you need their money. They know you need their experience and resources of, of human capital and, and, and access, right? And so they're really sharky at 10. And she's, you know, we had a great conversation. And I said to her, do you want to take on a 25 or 33% or a 49% investor at this point? Do you need that? Do you have to go from seven to 15 today? Or should you go seven, 10, 10, 15, and maybe there's a small, you know, and, and it's sort of just thinking that out. What works for you? What kind of relationship do you want? How yeah. much of your company are you willing to share? And, and, and it's just about the right point. Man, goes back to having the right advice and, and advice from more than one advisor, whether that's a roundtable, a mastermind, a coach. Um, but gosh, go to these conferences, go on LinkedIn, comment, yeah. find these leaders that you're hearing from and say, hey, can I have 15 minutes? I've got one question. I am stuck. Can you solve this one thing for me? Get me going in the right direction. And if you show them you take that one answer and you run it to ground and you absolutely live, breathe and, and master that information, you yeah. have permission to come back and ask the second question. And that is the path to get you going. And it's sort of like my, my old analogy is if you want to run faster, run with people who run faster than you and you yeah, will learn yeah. the very minute techniques to running faster. Yeah. So then talk to me. So uh, I, I love where we're talking now and I want to go all the way to the end of the road because you're now working <laughs> with a huge brand with more than 500 locations globally and it truly is a global brand um you said before we hit record seven units here in north america and obviously i imagine there's a desire to really grow that number so now talk to me we're talking about 5 10 15 20 you're now talking about 500 plus talk to me about how you're thinking about this way at the way at the other end of this spectrum what what are the things that are on that are on your mind as you're approaching the, again the next 24 months um, not losing connection to the authenticity and legacy of the brand, um, being a good, not a good, being the steward of the future of the brand, not allowing ego and audacity of our experience and our knowledge in the North American market to taint, uh, whitewash, vanilla wash, Americanize a phenomenally authentic 30 year old brand that's in 15 countries, has ubiquitous awareness among the Asian populations of the world. Um, that's my number one fear and, and thing that drives me on every decision every day. But here's the fun thing. I've got three franchisees with five, with seven stores. So I have five in, in three states in the continental US. I have one in Guam and one in British, uh, British Columbia, Vancouver. Um, we are a startup. We are at seven stores. I don't care about the 500 stores. I don't care about the global infrastructure that I have available and the resources of the private equity fund that um, if I put the proper plan in place and justify it, the money is available. Those are all given and that's great. 
But the answer is we're actually starting with three franchisees and seven stores in North America. How do we take that from seven to 500 or six? Our goal in the United States, ultimately, we believe 600 pepper lunches can exist in the United States across all models in all markets. How do we get from seven next year? We're going to add six next year. After that, we're going to add 20. And the next year after that, we're going to add 30. How do we go seven, 12 or 13, 25, 30, uh, 50? How do, how do we do that? Right. And so it's exactly what I said. Today, we have a three-year strategic plan that gets updated every year, but we also do a budget for next year. So I have a three-year strategic plan, a three-year theoretical budget, and then I have a hard one-year-in-front-of-me budget. I have an organizational plan. I have a marketing plan. I have a, um, a PR plan. I have an expos and conferences and uh, earned media plan. I have a um, execution plan, right? We have to support now. And by the way, back to the franchising piece, one thing I think most people miss is you're actually building a separate company. You're building a franchise infrastructure business. You owe products and services to people who invest in your brand and operate your brand on your behalf. You are a, you work for them, end of story. So we have to build that team and that business. Luckily, we have a great foundation already at Kiwi helping that and in, in, in at Pepper Lunch helping that on a global scale. But you have to build that group. You have to build that plan. And that's running a separate business. And so when you do that, that's got its own everything I just listed. And you have to execute flawlessly because you have promised these investors who are committing to 10, 15, 20 pepper lunches in Arizona and other states that you are going to give them what they need to grow quickly. These are sophisticated folks. I don't care if they're mom and pop. The reality is, is Joe, the mechanic and his wife, the salon owner are ready to jump into their lifelong dream of owning a restaurant and they want a pepper lunch in their life. And, and they're just fans and, and they know this is the future and this is a great thing to get into. Boy, you owe them everything because they have put it all on the line for you, right? So I don't care if it's somebody with a massive organization, money and team, they are making, they're writing the same check that Sally and Steve are, and you owe all of them everything you've got and every promise you make to be held true. So when we think about that, it is all planning and it is all thinking about all of the variables, all of the milestones, all of the challenges, we have to solve out in front. We have to have the answers before they ask the questions. So when you think about, am I a franchisor? Ask yourself, do you want to be in that business? And you didn't ask the question. I'm going to answer it. The people say, Troy, how do I know if I want to franchise? How do I know if that's right for me? I always start with, well, you're not going to run restaurants anymore. You're going to run a service operational business for other people who run restaurants. Do you want to be a professor and a teacher and a support system? Or do you want to run a bit business of running your own restaurants? That is kind of a number one question about corporate versus franchise. So tell me because, and I want to know not how one would do this, but how you in particular are thinking about this, but how do you go about going from seven to 13 to 25? How are you thinking about the next two years? Yep. Where do you find franchisees, especially as it relates to a brand that um, people may not know, especially here in the American market? I had the great fortune uh, to, I knew the one here in New York, or there were a couple, I guess, 
Um, I in a previous life, I was uh, I'll remind everybody was a food photographer. Uh, I worked with a PR company. I shot for Pepper Lunch in New York City three different uh, on three different occasions. Those photos are somewhere on my hard drive. I'll have to find them. See if I can include them. Uh, by the way, the brand is fantastic and the food is fantastic. But again, a lot of people may not know this brand. It's huge in other parts of the world, but not here. So how do you think about growing a brand and introducing the American market to it? And how do you think about introducing this brand to franchisees or prospective franchisees? Um, understanding what will resonate, both B2B and B2C, you have to segment them. So for us, we have to educate the sophisticated, and this is our strategy, right? Our strategy is to sell not less than five units in a same market to an existing operator of one or more brands that operates in that market as a market expert in that area. So they already have the answers to a lot of the questions on the test. Um, so, so that is a path of least resistance from knowledge transfer and experience transfer and uh, compliance and, and inspection sort of stuff um, and support. But at the same time, they're very sophisticated and they, they know what they're looking for and they know if you know what you know, if you know what you're doing. And so uh, different messaging, B2B messaging, you have to distill it down to why am I at Pepper Lunch? Why, why did we take this on? Why, why do I think this matters? Who cares about the next great Asian concept, right? Um, so we distill it down to us understanding and believing in the core values, the core um, uh, differentiating value propositions to the market. What does it mean to the operator? Well, for us, um, no prep labor, no skilled labor, low total labor. Asian is the fastest growing niche cuisine in North America. 60% um, of the customers that go to a pepper lunch are under 35. And that's really kind of true for most of the modern Asian concepts, whether it be ramen or uh, Korean barbecue or Japanese, uh, as, et cetera. Um, educating the B2B market, educating the franchisees that this is the future. There's a massive growing market for it. It is simple to operate. It is simple to build. It's um, got better financial metrics than the average fast casual concept. It's got um, at or below build cost metrics of the average concept. The ROI is under 36 months for your investment. Um, and there's just tremendous runway for the multiple generations to come. Th those are core. Those are simple. Those are sort of top line stories. The fact that we're 30 years old, we've had proof of concept in the United States for five and a half years with multiple franchisees. Those New York stores, by the way, are, were eight years ago they started. Those were multiple stores started by the previous ownership or the founding ownership group as proof of concepts that could they translate? Would the American audience, they were never meant to be legacy stores they were meant to test the market and say we heard new york's amazing and we should open in new york and you got to open five in new york to make a dent and so so they did that right and they had a lot of lessons learned from that so for me it is understanding what and believing in the brand and the concept and the value of it to a franchisee then to the b2b side is Wow, this is experiential, fast, casual. This is as authentic a meal as you're gonna get outside of Japan because this is a traditional family style meal served in the homes in Japan. We invest in quality ingredients. We only do the best quality proteins, veg, and we, we'll stop at nothing to make sure that we're delivering high quality. 
We're at a proper value. We are more expensive than all of our QSR fast casuals. We're much less expensive than a casual sit down, right? So our average played out the door $17.50, but boy, you're full, your flavor satiated, your belly's happy, and you don't feel like garbage an hour later. You have energy and it's craveable. You're gonna be thinking about this in two to three days. You're gonna be wanting to go back because those flavors are sitting on your brain, right? So it is two rails. It is completely different messaging, but boy, they overlap. And we've gotta we've gotta find our way. And 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 by the way, be willing to test, be willing to try, be willing to not hit home runs with every social media post or every trade ad or you know every conference you go to. Little little wins along the way. Our job is to spread the word, right? We're Johnny Appleseed out here spreading spreading the seeds around and making sure that the right people are hearing. And at the end of the day, I spend a lot of time just taking people to lunch and dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love it. You know, if if you're in the Los Angeles area, Las Vegas, especially for conferences, Houston, Texas, uh, you're in Guam, Japan, Singapore, any of the Asian nations, we will host you. I've had many people from America be like, hey, I've got a trip to this place. Great. We've got one in Thailand. Let me hook you up with my guy in Thailand. And I want you to go enjoy pepper lunch in Thailand. And I do it every day. Yeah. So, you know, being the consummate host is my favorite part of the job, right? Buying people lunch and what I just sit there and watch their face. And Sean Walshef did a great yeah. filming of his experience. By the way, our friend from Clubhouse, Ash L from Muya Burger is actually arriving at Irvine in the next 30 minutes. He's going to have his first experience. Just love being a host and seeing the look on people's faces. That's what it is. It's organic. It's old-fashioned, hand-to-hand networking, augmented by the efficiencies of the scalability of modern you know, technology, digital messaging. I love it. I love it. I, I think it's such a cool thing that you've landed into and uh, a really unique uh, overlap of sort of your skills and your experience and your resume and all of that. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's really cool. Um, talk to me as you're looking f- the 10 year plan, cause you're talking a lot about three year plan. Have you guys thought about when you think you'll be full these 600 units when, what that looks like and what sort of timeline is realistic? Yeah, so sales-wise, um, we'll end this year with about 55 stores committed um, among among about six uh, franchise partners. Um, next year, our goal is 100 stores across about 12 to 15 partners. Um, and then we wanna just do that every year. So really we're looking at sort of that 600 unit or so sellout um, happening inside the five-year horizon. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, then there's the trailing cadence of opening those stores. Again, back to simplicity of opening and operating and the and the legacy of uh, resources we have, many, many, many of our worldwide executives and leadership and directors and trainers have been with the company 15 to 25 years. So we have a phenomenal back, backlog and we're gonna be bringing lots of new people on too of, of institutional knowledge that we can transfer very quickly. We've built the systems and the processes and the assets already. We have all the supply chain and everything sorted out. So we actually can support rapid growth. So where most franchise um, franchisors would require you to buy the first store, make a deposit on the next four, open five stores in five years, we actually require you to purchase all five stores up front or 10 or whatever that number is. And we, on an on a accelerated timeline, of five stores in three years, 10 stores in six years. And so you're really gonna open one in the first year and then two or to three every year after that. And we're capable, willing, and have proven we can do that 
uh, on a global scale. So we're here to support that and make sure that's a success. So, you know, for us, um, 600 stores open in about a 10 year period uh, makes a lot of sense. That's very rapid growth. Certainly there's lots of possibilities to stumble or get paused or outside influences shake that up, but that's our goal. And, and, and that's the, what we're working from. And, and again, like I said, we adjust the three-year plan every year. We adjust next year's budget every year, and we're willing to be flexible, adaptable, and nimble to uh, what comes. Um, but, uh, but this isn't the only thing we're going to do, but pepper lunch is our life. And, uh, we're focused on that for the next number of years, but certainly, uh, the hot palate family is going to make other investments and bring other members into the family ultimately. Uh, and basically we'll be able to accelerate that using the existing systems and infrastructure eventually. But today, um, it's North America, us. Now we're starting the process, uh, mid-year next year to roll. Uh, the process up for uh, Canada, probably start really uh, offering opportunities in Canada in early 25. Um, we're actually growing in Guam. We're expecting another store in Guam. And then we're actually uh, having the strategic conversations about four and five years from now, what other countries make sense for us, right? We're not in Europe. We're not in the Middle East. We're not in India, um, South America. Brazil is absolutely on the map. So, you know, that is sort of the big thinking that kind of comes along with being the size and being in 15 countries and 500 stores today, um, that's a little different from what most of the folks in your audience could relate to. But when you get to where we are, we have to think long-term and big yep. scale because we have to move our resources towards those. And, and that's a big ship to steer, right? So turning towards Brazil is going to take three or four years. <laughs> well, and I asked that question and it was a, it was such a, it was such a great answer. But something that's come up, right, is this one, two, and three-year plan, this this looking down the field. And, you know, again, I find this in my mastermind, that when people carve out the two hours a week, and a lot of the resistance that I get with people who have one, two, three units, right, I may, might have two different concepts, five different units, um, that's sort of like the largest multi-unit operators that I have in my group. But a lot of the resistance I hear is like, I, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time. And when I convince them that this is the two hours a week that's going to save them another 10 or another 20, um, I, I love watching them that click together and they realize, oh, because number one, oh, the place didn't burn down. I was away from the place for two hours. Or, hey, I ended up taking the whole day off and the place didn't burn down. Then they start seeing other opportunities. And I guess the takeaway, <coughs> to, to bring it back to what I think a lot of the audience is, is thinking here is that you should have a one, two, and three-year plan. It's flexible, right? Like you said, there's a, there's a rigid budget for the one year. There's a there's a sort of a, a flexible one, two, and three-year plan. Thinking about putting the end in mind and thinking about where you want to go, and you, you've brought that up already a couple of times in this conversation, right? Should you continue with corporate-owned uh, stores or should you go the franchisor route? It depends what you want. And I think... A, a, too many of us, too many owners don't stop to think, well, what do I want? Because maybe one store is enough. Maybe three stores is enough. Maybe they do. Maybe they would look uh, like to get out of the operating restaurant game and into the, hey, I'm really good at teaching and, and integrating systems and showing people, you know, coaching people how to be their own uh, their own operator. So I, I love that you've I love that you've gone there in this conversation. I think it's a really great place to start wrapping it up. I ask everyone the same five questions when they come on the show, and I want to know if I can ask you those five questions. You down? 
Let's go. I'm excited. Super. I have no idea what they are. You're going to catch me and I'm just going to, whatever the first thing that comes to mind that's authentic and true, I'm just going to say it. I love it. Everybody Let's always go. says like, oh, can you tell me the questions? I said, if only you'd listen to a recent episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I started doing this. It has few... been a hot second. I've been busy reading your book, Chuck. I know. Thank your you. Your book's in my truck. Which I, I appreciate. keep the book of the day in my truck. So when I'm, you know, when I'm stuck between meetings or airports or whatever, I've got your book. So I'm actually reading your book instead of listening to the last five episodes. But I, I I'll get back just, on track and kick on up. I'm just kidding. All right, here's the first question. What's the last great meal you've had? Oh, man, I was in Tokyo 10 days ago, and uh, uh, every meal was great. Uh, but uh, uh, yakaniku is my new thing, which is essentially the Japanese version of Korean barbecue where you get – fine meats and uh, and some sides, and you grill them on the little uh, grill in front of you. Um, so I had some pretty phenomenal A5 Japanese Kobe Wagyu Yakaniku. Uh, and then I go back in uh, on the 20th of the month, I go back and uh, we've already slated some different uh, food. So I'm just taking the food tour of Tokyo right now. So I had like Yakaniku three times when I was there. I'm always going to get great sushi, but man, I had some phenomenal Japanese Yakaniku when I was there. So that's the last great meal I had. Love it. Uh, okay. And by the way, casual. Completely yeah. walked in off the street to a 12-chair hole-in-the-wall yeah. spot. Yes. And was amazing. Yes, for sure. Yeah. That's Tokyo. Um, tell, me about, uh, tell me about the best hospitality touch you've ever received. Oh, my God. Ever? Um, or a notable I, one. Something that really sticks out that resonates. Yeah. Yeah, you know, surprise and delight. Um, I think it's more often, I, I can't, I'm not going to nail an individual storyline down, but I'll say this, it, it, the feeling is there. I remember the feeling it's happened a handful of times. When I meet somebody in QSR, fast casual, through the drive-through or across the counter, and I think to myself, my God, I wish I could hire them today. When I, when I, when, when I'm just like, you get it. You get it. You're in a position, you're being paid minimum wage. You're an order taker across the counter, a drive through, but man, are you bringing it? Are you living the brand? Are you proud of yeah. what you're doing and who you're, you care about my experience, boy, that, you know, as you know, they're rare, but when they happen, I'm like, oh, I would hire you today to do anything. Yeah. You are amazing. Those, those are the moments that while I can't think of exactly what it is and we all go back to chick-fil-a um i'm really ecstatic when it's yeah. not chick-fil-a or yeah. in an burger um yeah it's it's those moments where hospitality isn't expected anymore and we're jaded to the concept yeah. but then it happens and we're so pleasantly surprised uh, and it puts a smile that's on our face it's great yeah. okay um Tell me, uh, this is my genie question, right? Genie comes down, grants you one wish as it relates to our industry. What's the one thing you wish for? Um, further, deeper, and additional connectivity. You know, the one thing that the pandemic has done that before in 2019, we're all on our own rails. We're all have blinders on. We're all just barreling as fast as we can to the highest success. And it was very, always has been me, me, my way. I'm doing it all the way I do it. And no collaboration within the industry. Um, the fact that we all came together in part because of the struggles and tribulations of the pandemic and so many great innovations and technology and systems and, and the clubhouse and, and, and podcasts and LinkedIn um, all became so much more relevant. Um, the genie for me is 
if everybody could realize the power of communal connectivity, mastermind, roundtable, learning together, sharing best practices, I just can't tell you how every day I see the results of that experience and you get to see it every day at scale with your groups. Um, that is the absolute unlock. And even for somebody like me, um, I have multiple mentors that I go to and some of them might see me as equals or on the same playing field or in the same league. But man, I look up to them and they know things I don't know. And I just want, I just want knowledge. I just, please help me forge this path easier, faster, more efficiently. So that's my wish for the industry is get out of your store, get your, lift your head out of the sand, uh, listen to the podcast, join the open table, round table, digital hospitality with Sean Walshef on Clubhouse or LinkedIn, whatever it is, yeah. read the Chip Close book, read on, look, Unreasonable Hospitality, like whatever it is mm -hmm. that unlocks for you, like do it and, and realize that you don't have all the answers and you're not supposed to. And gosh, why bang your head against the wall when you can just, um, Try somebody else's tactic that worked for, for them. For sure. I love it. All right. What uh, what advice would you give someone who's about to open their very first restaurant? Uh, twice the money, twice the time, uh, twice the tears. Uh, it's going it's, it, to – look, it's not easy. Entrepreneurship's not easy. Um, don't, don't have unrealistic expectations and timelines and uh, financial goals. Um, it is it is exactly going to cost you twice as much, take twice as long for every milestone uh, from finding the store, building the store, opening the store, staffing the store and reaching break even. Um, you have to be realistically prepared for what it really is going to take because you're putting it all on the line. And is it really worth the risk if you only have prepared? Yeah, for sure. All right, last um, last question. Look five years down the line and tell me something that's coming. Tell me something that you see that's coming that other people might not see coming. I think everybody's talking about it. I think that <clears throat> I think that um, what's going to happen in technology. Let's just use as an example. Right now, it's off the shelf twenty four SaaS products, two thousand dollars a month, and you've got to stitch this all together and be a master of everything. Um, consolidation is coming. Consolidation is starting to happen. Uh, interplay and interconnectivity of technology. More and more people are taking best in class features and benefits and putting them into their products. We're going to see more sort of to total operating systems, self built or, or built for me, semi custom operating systems that become affordable to the small emerging brand and group. Um, so, so accessibility to tools and resources that are have typically been reserved for very large brands with large pockets um, will ladder down and become a more valuable, useful, accessible tool to everybody. Um, I don't see any world where um, labor comes back in this industry. Uh, you and I, and we've had lots of conversations over many years. I know both of us believe in the human and we love the human and the human hospitality, but there are gonna be uh, permanent losses and we're going to have to find a way to differentiate ourselves, our brand, our service, our hospitality in new ways. And no, is that just robots? Is that just AI? Is that just technology? Absolutely not. But is it adjusting my service model, my messaging, my sure. where, when, and how I interact with my community? Um, there's a lot of room for hospitality and human connectivity. 
but we're going to have to learn to do much more with much less. And I don't just mean availability of labor, but regulatory and legal pressures. Um, boy, are they coming down hard and the world is changing. So um, I think that's something that people really have to be mentally prepared for. Ultimately, I think we've been using our people, and I love the point, I think we've been using our people in really bad ways, um, simply because yeah. we had to use them that way, right? Perfect example is a, is a cashier. Is a cashier at a fast food restaurant, right? They're just taking orders. I tell you something, they hear it, they tap, they tap it in. Ultimately, they say, is that everything? And they tell me how much I owe. That, that's a that's a kiosk. Yep. We've been doing that at the gas station yep. for 35 years. Um, and kiosk does it much better. They actually upsell 35% more than the t- cashier. Correct. Does. Correct. hundred percent. Well, here's yeah. the thing is that when we say, okay, so we end up um, right now, we're not utilizing our people to their fullest potential. Um, it's a pretty boring, mundane job. So if we can uh, give that job to the computers, I think what we end up doing is finding uh, a better use of that person, right? This is that McDonald's case study from, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, they uh, set out to install the kiosks to cut labor. And what happened is that they didn't really cut labor all that much. They just ended up uh, utilizing, reallocating their uh, their human capital in other ways that improved the place, like the cleanliness of the pe- uh, the place and the ease of use and sort of the, the general friendliness of the place. Um, because otherwise it was a pretty transactional thing, right? Get the order, get the payment, move on. Get the order, get the payment, move on. And the kiosks allowed everyone to sort of take a deep breath and be like, take your time, right? Famously at McDonald's, the order uh, the order time went up, right? Went from something yeah. like 55 seconds to like a minute 25 seconds to place an order. It, it like 50% more, something like that. Uh, but but so did the order. So did the, uh, the check average went up about 15% across the board, across tens of thousands yeah. of units. At scale. At scale. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason they installed them in 13,000 U.S. units in the uh, span of 18 months. Because they went, oh my God, it works. <laughs> I think there are going to be tools like that that are going to come around that are going to allow us to uh, use our people in better ways. Uh, and I'm really excited to see what happens five years from now or 10 years from now when we have a whole new model. Because right now we're still sort of, you know, jerry-rigging something with the, the Paris model, the, the, the model of restaurants that we, that we were given 250 years ago. Restaurants have been around for, I don't know, five, 6,000 years. Uh, there, there were other models before the model we know now. Yeah. There will be, uh, we will revert yeah. to those models. We will find new models. I think technology allows us to do well, it. Well, let me leave this tip. Let me leave this tip or tactic with you on that point, Chip. Um, the fastest, best, and most efficient way to begin to visualize that in your business, one store or future store or 10 stores, is uh, know your people. Uh, I'll say this. Um, every person you've given a job title to and you've relegated to a single job task vertical of of effort in your business is a multifaceted human being with other skills, interests, and capabilities. And I guarantee you, if you're struggling to produce organic TikTok content, you probably have somebody working for you that has 10 or 15 or 60,000 followers on TikTok or any other skill set. Name it. Excel, right? Uh, yep. You know, uh, on right. a project management, whatever. They're constantly learning. They're constantly curious. They're willing to go learn new things that they maybe didn't know they wanted to go learn to do it for you, to be of value to you. Yep. Elevate the the available effort and energy and 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 commitment of your staff by opening the door. Sit down. Get to know your people, know what they're interested in, know what their future plans are for themselves, 
and then leverage that interest, that skill set, that energy to benefit you. Invite them to be a part of improving your business and changing your business with and for you. Guaranteed, you have 90% of the things you think you need are already inside the four walls of your building. 100%. I think it's a great place to end. Uh, Troy, listen, uh, where can people go to learn more about uh, you, the brand, the, the expansion, all of that? PepperLunchRestaurants.com, uh, version three of the website launching soon. Lots of big announcements coming there, but uh, anywhere on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Threads, uh, soon to be YouTube, we're launching, we're putting the videos up. Uh, LinkedIn is my favorite. If you just go to Pepper Lunch Restaurants on LinkedIn or you follow j.troyhooper on uh, LinkedIn, uh, you'll get a lot more than just Pepper Lunch on mine. Uh, but I'm easy to find them. As Sean says, I'm weirdly available. Uh, my <laughs> cell phone number is everywhere on the internet. Uh, I get lots of spam, but that is worth, uh, filtering through all the spam is worth hearing from those folks who hear these shows and uh, and want to connect and um, and ask a question or yeah. uh, get an introduction in or uh, get pointed in the direction of a resource or a tool. Uh, always helped it. Always happy to help. And especially uh, your audience, because uh, your audience is near and dear to my heart and uh, always want to stay connected to it. Listen, I think it's so exciting. Uh, the growth you got planned. Uh, I appreciate you coming here to share some of that growth plan with us uh, and to help our audience uh, think bigger and uh, think at scale and think about uh, the end, right? Think about, you know, putting the end in mind, figuring out where you want to go. I talk a lot about systems and goals, right? Systems and goals is just figuring out where do you want to go? What do you have to do to get you there? And then you measure it and you say, did it, did it get me where I was going? Or do I have to try a different route? So systems and goals, where do you want to go? What do you have to do? to get to where you want to go. Uh, Troy, I appreciate you. I appreciate all that you do for this industry. Thanks for taking time. Thanks for having this conversation. Always great to be with you. Thanks, Chip. Look forward to seeing you out there on the road soon. So once again, I got to thank Troy for taking time out of his very, very, what must be a very busy day to sit and chat with me, to share his experiences and insights with all of you. Again, I want to remind you to go get the book. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't uh, read the, the book yet, The Restaurant Marketing Mindset, you can get that Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com, or you can go to The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. Dot com. Uh, buy the book there. You can get as many copies as you want. I always recommend getting two, three, four copies so you can give them to all of your team. I think your team's going to uh, I think your team's going to appreciate it and you're going to reap the benefits of that collaborative spirit. Again, the restaurantmarketingmindset.com. You'll get that link in the show notes and all of the pepper lunch links are in the show notes as well. All of Troy's links are in the show notes. Again, big thanks to Troy. Big thanks to all of you guys for taking time out of your day to listen. I hope you get some value from this show. Really appreciate all of you being here and I will see you next time.